Good morning and welcome to Recipe for Success. My name is Nancy Giacalone and my guest today is Rachel Strauss with EHIM. We'll explain in a few minutes what all those letters mean and what she does. Um, for anyone that is tuning in for the first time, the purpose of this podcast is really to connect my love of cooking, business, people, kind of my curious nature with what is the one thing, the key ingredient or technique that makes people successful? So as I mentioned, I'm super excited to have Rachel Strauss on my um, show today. She is with EHIM, which is a pharmacy benefit manager. Rachel, welcome and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what a pharmacy benefit manager is. Sure. So again, my name is Rachel Strauss. Um, I am a Detroit native. That's where I am from. Uh, it's also where EHIM is based. Um, but about seven years ago, I became Houstonian, Nancy. I, I wouldn't say y'all is part of my everyday vocabulary, but I'm trying to integrate it more because it is fun to say. Um, I have been with EHIM, which is a National Pharmacy Benefit Manager, for 20 years this upcoming December. And for those of you listening who have never heard the term pharmacy benefit manager, a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM uh, for short, it's, it's another acronym, which I think we have so many of in this health insurance industry. It's crazy. Crazy. Um, a PBM is the component of healthcare that processes prescription drugs, for lack of a better term. Um, a PBM is responsible for creating a pharmacy network, negotiating pricing for prescription drugs, and a good PBM takes that M part very seriously, which is they try to manage the prescription part, uh, the cost part of the prescriptions. Um, and, you know, in a fully insured environment, there's a PBM processing claims and a self-funded environment. You may be more aware of who your PBM partner is. But I think I read somewhere, Nancy, that almost 80 or 85% of all prescriptions that are processed in the country today, even on a cash basis because of copay cards, are processed through a PBM. Yeah, I think I read that term as well. Um, so where in Texas are you now? Sure, I'm in Houston. Houston. Okay. I'm pretty sure that I might have been a Texan in another life because all my favorite people seem to come from Texas. So my husband keeps saying, we can move, honey, we can move. I'm like, no, we can't move. But yeah, I enjoy what your hair looks like not being in Texas. That's the part that I think I was born for. My hair at some point when I go outside, especially this time of year, it starts to invade people's personal space. <laughs> Is it humid where you're at? I, it's very humid. Yeah, I think you, I think I read that Houston's one of the most humid cities in the country, especially in August. Oh. Okay, I'm not. I'm. I'm not gonna lie. That's not my favorite. When, when I was in San Diego a couple of days ago, it was really humid there, which is not usually humid there. And I'm like, what's going on with my hair? Because my hair does not like humidity at all. San Diego is supposed to be perfect weather. That it usually is. It just was. They had some like marine layer or something. But okay, so. Um, recently, I think you know, this is one of the reasons you're on, is I made the conscious decision that I really wanted to pivot the focus of this podcast. And I really wanted to focus on women, um, not only in this insurance industry, but across all industries. And I wanted to focus on women doing great things in their industry, which you are one of. But what's really cool is that EHIM is woman owned and has been for quite some time. 
So yes. tell me a little bit about that. So EHIM has always been woman-owned. Um, our CEO and founder, Mindy Fink, uh, literally built EHIM from the ground up from her one-bedroom apartment. Um, she had a pivot in life uh, when she started EHIM. She was originally in the healthcare industry, um, working as in, in the nursing field at a doctor's office, and then kind of through other stories, ended up starting EHIM. But I was really uh, right out of college when I started with EHIM. I was very impressed um, with the owner, um, with our CEO, as I still am always, 20 years later today. Um, yeah, I think it's amazing to work for a woman, um, especially with you know the way the world is today. Yeah, so obviously you've been with the company for 20 years, which is a almost a rarity anymore in, in today's society, which I'm very impressed with, by the way. But did the fact that it was a woman-owned company factor into your decision not only to start there, but to stay there? Definitely to stay there. I don't you know, I was young out of college and um, it was just kind of one of those right place, right time. I don't think very few of us, Nancy, wake up one day in college and are like, I'm gonna work in the health insurance industry. No. Um, I did have a passion for healthcare. My dream was to become a healthcare reporter in college. I loved the trends and um, had a lot of science background and I graduated right after 9-11 as everyone now can do the math and figure out how old I am. Um, and you know, journalism was just different in those days. It was scary and I wasn't ready to move from my hometown in Detroit. And I had a relationship with the CEO and she knew who I was. And um, so I started kind of by accident, I think, which is a lot of how people start in our field. And those who stay a long time at it are the ones that find the passion for it. And I wouldn't have found the passion had it not have been for Mindy. And I think a lot of how we do things at our company that you know makes us a little different, I have to say, I think has a little bit of that woman's touch. And I think that the approach to it um, and, and really how she built a niche is, I think, probably because she was a woman and just, you know, kind of more of a mother bear kind of concept and more how she wanted to protect the industry. And I think that's what inspired me every day to come to work. I love that. Okay. So, um, true confession to anybody that might be watching this. I've been in this industry for 35 years, but a long time. And so, and I've always known about PBMs. And I, of course, I work with them in my self-funded clients, but it can still be even to somebody as seasoned or old, however you want to take it, as myself, um, PBMs can still be confusing. And it's not just, it's not just the what you do, but the pricing around pharmaceutical drugs, uh, drugs, um, the shadow pricing, the rebates, the incentives, it's very confusing. Um, and it sometimes feels like it's there's the Wizard of Oz curtain. Yeah. And behind that is the actual value of drugs. So how can a good PBM offer insights into better understanding how to effectively manage the cost of drugs, not only for the plan, but to the benefit of the members as well. Sure, so I think what has happened is, you know, look, the function of a PBM, as I mentioned, Nancy, the M part, we were supposed to manage the cost of prescription drugs. And I think what's happened is a number of different facets which have made it so confusing. It's a confusing by a design, right? Your average consumer, before I ever got in this business, right? You pick up your prescription, you think you pay a price and you figure with insurance, somebody's paying the higher value of what you right. need for. But that's not how the industry works. And it, a lot of it has to do with the supply chain and how pharmacies, whether you go to a local independent, which you know is part of our fabric still, thank God that there's still mom and pops out there, or you go to a huge 
conglomerate like a Walgreens or CVS, everybody's acquiring drugs from different places. And so you've got a lot of hands involved and you've got a lot of areas for markup. Plus, you've got the pharmaceutical companies themselves who can create different pricing, whether they're selling through a wholesale market like a McKesson or through direct again to a conglomerate pharmacy chain or even with hospitals. Right. We've all seen that news story about the mom who has a baby who takes some pain medication that the hospital built some crazy amount of money for. And I think, you know, when you're talking how do we control costs? And I certainly don't have all the answers. And if any brokers are listening today, they can tell you there's some brilliant brokers out there who stump me on a weekly basis with questions because there are so many convoluted ways that PBMs make money. And I think the way to explain this is also to understand the history of, you know, what's happened in the last 10, 15 years, why the buzzword is transparency with pharmacy benefit managers. You know, as you probably remember 15, 20 years ago, the model for PBMs, nobody ever asked PBMs how we got paid, right? Nope. It was just, you know, our job was manage prescriptions and that's you know what we did and i don't think you know if i i've been in the industry when it really started which was really thanks to walmart i believe walmart was the beginning of the transparency need because they started with a brilliant marketing ploy which was the four dollar generic right when right you started seeing that on the news and you probably had members call you about how should, should i go get four dollar drugs and the good pbms the ones that were already angled correctly had those four dollar drugs as part of their formulary but what started happening were all these pbms where they had what's called spread pricing which is they were making more money and that's how they were getting paid but i think they got egregious i don't think i know they did and so you had drugs and i think the one that everybody really paid attention to um you know in the late early mid 2000s really was lipitor mm -hmm. because lipitor was one of those drugs that quickly became a four dollar generic and you knew the name of Lipitor. And if you saw it on a client report and it was two or three or four hundred dollars for a month's supply, it kind of, you know, became that, you know, I love Lucy. Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. How could this be a four hundred dollar drug? And and that really opened up. Well, how are PBMs getting paid? And there, you know, and for and for those listening, you know, today, you should know how your PBMs are getting paid. Um, and look, I have a job at a PBM. I want PBMs to make money because I thank God have a job. But it's just in being honest and doing the job which we're hired to do, which is manage. So to kind of, I took a long way to answer and get back to how do we control costs? And and I think it starts with transparency. And I think it it's understanding how a partner is getting paid. And look, if a PBM has spread pricing and no admin fee, I'm not saying that's always bad. I just think that if that's the case, you have to make sure their incentives are aligned with the plan sponsor and that your trend is a reasonable number. Because if, if your trend is reasonable and you're not seeing double digit every year or you know crazy claims out of the woodworks without a strategy behind them, then your PBM is doing a good job and they should get paid to do so, however that payment arrangement is. But I think that the only way we're ever going to get better as an industry is with universal transparency and understanding the pharmaceutical companies' models and what they're doing behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, I've always been of the opinion that everybody needs to be paid because none of us work for free. Right. So it's not a, it's not about that the PBMs shouldn't be paid and compensated fairly, but the, um, the smoke and mirrors that goes into a lot of it is just... I mean, it's just insane. So, okay, so now we're gonna get into a little bit of treacherous territory here and talk about specialty medications. 
Um, as a broker, it's something that we deal with all the time um, and it can literally destroy a plan. Some of these medications can destroy a health plan. Um, we see medications that run, I mean, I see them every day, that run from $50,000 a year to a half million dollars a year. Yep. And they sometimes, some of them, not all of them, but some of them don't even really have the full data behind them. It's kind of, well, they work for about 10% of the people, so let's give it a try while we collect all this money. Um, so hand in hand with that though, is the advertising for these specialty meds that can seem to cure everything. Um, I sat there one night with my husband, um, I don't know, we were watching Dateline or something, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm writing down all the medications that are being advertised, and I was looking up the prices. And the average price per month of medications that were being advertised was $5,000 a month. Oh yeah. Do you think, or I mean, I know as a PBM, you can't specifically do anything about it, but do you think there's going to be um, or foresee anything that's going to rein that in? Because that is a freaking runaway train. I hope so. I mean, look, I'm, I will not get into politics. So, we, you know, it's, it's hard with each administration there. It seems like they're getting close. Right. Um, right. And it's just the, there's a lot of lobbyists that are fighting it. I mean, there was something on the, you know, recently where they wanted to have the price of prescription drugs put on the commercials. And it was such a brilliant idea. And look, it got shut down. I, yeah. I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, look, our my PBM is unique in that we've never we don't deal with pharmaceutical rebates at all. But I'll, I'll explain the history behind it. Is our CEO? I mentioned she worked at a doctor's office, right. right? And when she started EHIM and got that phone call from some rebate aggregation company, you probably saw our bin number, which for listeners is what identifies a unique PBM for billing purposes. And she hadn't processed one claim yet. And somebody called to pay her money in order to process their claims or put their prescriptions as preferred drugs. And in her mind, she was, you know, I don't want to age our CEO, but I, I will say EHIM is 35 years old. So she's a little older than that. But I can tell you she had worked at a doctor's office and they had just, they being Washington, had just slammed the pharmaceutical industry from a doctor's perspective. Right. They said you cannot rebate doctors. You cannot pay a doctor to go to Hawaii to, to write all of your back to Lipitor back then. Right. 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 And so in her mind, it made sense that this was going to be shut down. And so it's amazing. Here we are 35 years later that they have not talked a to the payer side about controls. And then the consumer side, you know, it's 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 dangerous. And, you know, we've got patients now and you see this all the time you know, that are not, not just patients, they're consumers, right? We go to the doctor and we know in our head what our diagnosis is before we've had a test and what's going to fix that diagnosis that we ourselves have Googled and figured out based on the commercial that told us we have what we have. Right. So I, I think, you know, the, the good news, not good, I think the game, unfortunately, it's a game. And I think what pharmaceutical companies have allowed for is for the smart plan sponsor to at least understand that there are some strategies that pharma has created so that you can help offset some of these costs, um, which I know, you know you're very familiar with. And for those listening, if you're not, I hope every broker or plan sponsor, or anybody who's interested in this space understands there are strategies to help cut costs with specialty drugs. And you, this is what your broker will hopefully help steer you with the right partners so that these $50,000 drugs aren't causing, you know, your entire plan to go upside down. Yeah. But 
it is a game. And it, it's unfortunate because I don't, I mean, you know, you should say you don't want to get into politics, nor do I, because I don't think this should be a political discussion at all. This is a common sense discussion right. in my mind. It's how do you help the most people most effectively? It shouldn't be about which lobbyists are the strongest. So, okay. So along those lines and my actual last, well, maybe second to last um, pharmacy question is, I get this asked this a lot. People say, well, I can get it so much less in Canada. If I just get it mail order from Canada, it's going to cost so much less. How come, why is that? What's your, what's your opinion? May not be fact, but what's your opinion as far as why that is? I think it's fact. I think unfortunately, and, and you know, look, it's both sides because again, we're not going to get political. The FDA has a purpose, right? And the, the controls that keep us as Americans safe looks, yes, there's a lot of hands involved and we could go off a lot of conspiracy theories, but the, the overall function of us as Americans in this country is to have controls and those controls cost money. And in other countries, they don't have necessarily the same type of expense behind the scenes, you know, to like our FDA, for example. So a lot of the medications that can come from other countries are the same drugs with less overhead. And it's really the simplest answer. Yeah, it's a, it's, uh, it's a little bit unfortunate that, that it happens that way, but it, it does. Um, okay, so this is an interesting fact. I found out that you actually started in the underwriting department before moving into sales. I, I don't know any, but I've never heard that before. So I think you must be a unicorn or something. <laughs> there's an underwriting brain and there's a sales brain. So how did you manage to make that transition? So, so a lot of this has to do with my personal story of how I started with EHIM. So when I started with EHIM, I started, um, I was a reporter and um, looking for extra hours. So I started at EHIM and I think my first function was just filing, you know, just kind of right out of right. college, getting, you know, learning. And our chief underwriter at the time, um, I didn't think her title was chief. We had 11 employees. We were a small startup PBM. She was going to Hawaii for a couple of weeks. And, you know, if anybody who does underwriting, I was not a senior level underwriter, but, you know, when you have entry level, it's all built for you behind the scenes in Excel. And so I was so fresh out of college that I was the first person that really understood Excel. I mean, I, I had all these classes and background in it. So I was an easy temp to fill in sure. and just put in numbers for quotes. I didn't do any of the mathematics at that point behind the scenes, but it was the numbers. And it was while she was out of town, and I joke, I was 22, and um, a broker called to understand his proposal. And I probably should have passed the call on, but you know I'm a people person, which I'm sure is evident at the moment. And I said, well, hang on, this guy named Greg, if he's listening in Detroit, he knows exactly who he is. But I went on the computer and I said, I'm gonna figure this out. And I went behind the scenes, saw all the math and started figuring out what the assumptions were from a per member standpoint. And he said, I want you to go to a meeting. Can you go to a meeting with me and explain how you got all these numbers? And, Nancy, I was 22, and here is the girl in me. I was like, this just meant I could probably go to Express and buy a button-down shirt, and did I need a briefcase? That's how it was in my head. But yes, I was going to a meeting. And I remember that day, Mindy came over to just check on me and said, how was, you know, how did you like it? I said, oh, it was great, and I'm going to go to a meeting. And Mindy looked, she goes, you're what? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to talk about the numbers. And Mindy actually went with me, and so slowly but surely, um, I learned how to sell EHIM through the numbers. And so they kept me in underwriting while the company needed me there. Um, and so I be, it's a look, the, the, when you really get into PBM, we're not selling a widget. It's really consultative. It's understanding risk. It's understanding where prescriptions are going. It's reading about new drugs. 
And I loved it. So it was, yes, I'm, I love sales and I love presenting, but to me, and probably what's, thank goodness, made me successful over the years is that I'm not selling numbers somebody's giving me. I can back end up virtually almost any contract and, and understand where I'm coming from. And I, I really, I can see where that reporter background really serves you well. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about getting information to the people and yep. understanding what you're talking about. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I'm looking at your lovely background of your family and your kids. And as I already told you, I'm a little stalkerish when it comes oh, to my I, I, I like to find out as much as I can. So I have a better understanding of what makes you you. And so I know that part, your kids are, are part of your story. And I know that um, you have a daughter that just started kindergarten. But before we talk about that, what it was, what has it been like for you for the last year and a half um, during the pandemic while everyone's essentially been working from home. Sure. So I will start with this statement and then I'll just look at your face. I started the pandemic with a two and a three-year-old. Okay. Yep. So, um, you know, but I got to tell you this pandemic and, and they are part of my story. They're in my background and I'll kind of explain how the pandemic has changed my whole view of work. But my husband's part of my story. Uh, my husband was a really good cold call that I made in Detroit when somebody gave me the name of their broker who happened to be located in Houston, Texas. Oh, I love so, that. Um, yeah, so we are a health insurance family. Um, that's why I live in Texas. But what the pandemic did was a few things. One is, you know, anywhere for women who are happen to be listening to this podcast, Look, women are pulled into so many roles if we decide and, and make the choice we want to be mothers also, right? We, we choose to be mothers. We have an identity before we're a mom. And you get pulled in so many different directions. What the pandemic taught me was to be unapologetic about both roles. And, you know, I we actually moved into the home I'm sitting in the week before the pandemic. This was a bare white wall behind me. And I would do these Zooms. And you would hear, you hear people, you hear voices. And I just decided, yeah, I have kids. I have a beautiful kids. I'm proud of my kids. Um, they're what fuel me to go. And I'm going to put them up behind me. And so what the pandemic did is it, it stripped down all barriers of who I was in two dichotomies of life and created one. Because that's who I am. I'm just me. I'm a mom. I'm a EHIMer. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I like yourself. We have so many roles. And I think it made me more authentic. And I think that's what the pandemic did is it gave us all permission to just be who we are. We're going to have cranky kids. I mean, during this podcast, I have a, a lawn that was just mowed, you know, that I got a little nervous about, but it's, it's life. We're just living it. Thank yeah, God. I, I, I love that too. And I, the one thing that comes to my mind and um, because I worked the whole time, my, my son was younger, um, but in some ways it was a gift of time as well during those, those precious years that, you know, you might not have had as much one-on-one -on -one time with them during that period. So. No. And, and look, I, yesterday I got to see my son uh, go to his first day of kindergarten, you know, and so it's, it's really, it's been great. So let's talk about your son for a minute, because that is a huge part of your story. Wow. Um, I'm going to share a, a video in a minute, but Rachel, tell us a little bit about um, your son's journey. Sure. So um, as I mentioned, my husband is in health insurance. This is our life, right? We understand deductibles and co-insurance and how many people call. And, you know, it's one thing to talk about a drug and a high cost drug. But at the other side of that high cost that you or I are trying to figure out a strategy for is a patient with a really terrible diagnosis. And when I was 20 weeks pregnant, um, I got, you know, news during our 20 week ultrasound that my son had a hole in his heart. 
And so virtually in seconds, like life happens, um, I became the other side of healthcare, which is somebody with a diagnosis and a scary year ahead with bills that would come and medications and trying to figure out you know, all the other things. And it definitely creates a, a new form of empathy for patients. I mean, we'd all like to think we have it, right? Of course, we understand as humans, but being touched by it and being, you know, having a son have open heart surgery as a new mom and knowing that we were going to get what ended up being almost a million dollars of claims to come. And, you know, it's it just created another side to the story and, and why I'm passionate about healthcare and, you know, being an advocate for people who need one. And, I'm, you know, you asked if we could share my son's story. Of course, you know, I believed part of the other side of me is a person who always wants to help. And I would, if one person is listening today who has a friend or a family member or somebody that they just heard has a child with a heart condition, I want to be a resource. I want to be somebody who they can pick up the phone and say, hey, you went through this. Can I see a you know picture of your kid? What's the other side of this story? And thank God we have a happy story. My son is vibrant, thriving, just started kindergarten, as we talked about, has no life limitations. He'll have things down the road, but you know, and we know that and we stay educated and we have, you know, all of the necessary checkups. But it's just, again, it continues part of who we are. And and my husband, I'm, you know, as a broker, as I mentioned, he volunteers at the hospital. He felt like he had no uh, men to call. You know, there was a lot of women who are at the hospital who I could reach out to, but he said that there were dads who just wouldn't understand what their, how their health insurance would work or how to be there for a wife who is probably as emotional as I am. And so it just created a bigger purpose for both of us. I love that. Okay, so I we're going to see how good I am. No promises, but I'm going to try and share this video. So hang on, um, everyone, for half a second here. Okay, so let's see if I can do this. Uh, share screen. Okay, easy as two mono. Well, that's fine. Let's see, where's that's not the one I want. Window. Here we. Hmm. Chrome tab. Maybe I can do that. Oh, here we go. Oh, I think I'm going to do it. You guys should be very, very proud of me right now. Let's see if I. Okay, so let's go ahead and play that. Now I've got it up, so let me get it back to the beginning. Okay, we'll see if this is going to work. In January of 2016, we learned two days after my birthday that our son, who was 20 weeks in utero, would be diagnosed with a heart defect. We were sitting there in the room, and the technician who was looking at everything reviewed it and said, well, you know, he's got 10 fingers, he's got 10 toes, he's got you know, great lungs, the brain activity is great. And, you know, we just kept going on until she paused and she stopped. And there was a long silence and I was petrified. A cardiologist came in, reviewed the video and determined that there was some form of an abnormality in Leo's heart. They made the recommendation that now that we had this heart defect diagnosis, the only place for us truly to deliver would be at Texas Children's Hospital. For the women's pavilion and the fetal center, we do all interventions on fetuses that require an intervention. We actually have a meeting once a week that we present these cases and discuss it with neonatology, geneticist, high-risk maternal fetal medicine, 
our OBs that help to deliver our patients with cardiac defects. So that as a heart center here and as Texas Children's, we're able to have a maternity center that has all components of some specialties and link that with the heart center. So it's a really perfect program to give the child the best outcome for a good normal life. We came to Texas Children's, had another fetal echocardiogram, and they took us into a room with a diagram of a heart, and they showed us that Leo had tetralogy of below with pulmonary atresia and a ventricular septal defect. When they said those words, it might as well have been in another language. I cannot tell you, other than the drawing and the, you know, the word defect, I don't think I remember much of that day other than crying a lot. I remember as we were going through the discussion of the heart defect, uh, Rachel was pretty overcome and was very teary. And uh, Levi was just, you know, very tender with her and sweet and trying to comfort her. And sometimes it's really hard to just push through and have to get through the information that they need to hear. As a fetal cardiologist, we are really the window into the heart center. We will completely destroy a normal pregnancy. We end up making a family very sad that they have congenital heart disease, but after many visits throughout the gestation, we've empowered them with the knowledge and the information that they're able to deal with and understand what needs to be done for their child to really repair that heart and then give the child for the family to take care of. We had no idea what we were in store for. We just knew that we were at Texas Children's Hospital. My father, who's a physician in Michigan, said, you have nothing to worry about. They are the absolute best in the country. We were told there was a possibility that Leo would be rushed immediately to the NICU, um, and that we may not have that skin-to-skin -skin moment, that bonding moment with our newborn. Leo was not born blue. He was born pink. Uh, he came out, and we got to hug him and hold him. And then I went with my son to the NICU. So they wanted him to gain a little more size and a little more weight um, before they conducted that surgery. Day 23 of surgery day. Leo's heart surgery was about eight hours. That day um, was a blur, but I remember Leo being called away from me to go into surgery. We said, you know, our good lucks to him and kind of gave him a kiss before he went in. The day going by through updates and, you know, how many people really cared about us and were there for us and i the last memory i have which we have on video we just sent out one massive text to everybody and it was just levi and i telling everybody he was fixed chest is closed and he's fixed off the bypass and he's fixed <laughs> So Leo is two and a half. He is perfect. Um, what's really amazing to me that 11 months of the year, I don't even really think about Leo's heart. Um, Leo does not take any medications. He does not have any life restrictions. Every November, we will see Dr. Nancy Ayers, who is our cardiologist here at Texas Children's. My fetal patients are like good books. Uh, we see them at the beginning of pregnancy, and I followed them now. They're married and have children of their own. So it's sort of like a good story. You, you see them in utero, you meet their family, you know about their family, uh, and you kind of grow with that family and that child. And I think that's what we're here for, Texas Children's, not only to repair their heart, but to make them normal.
He is the happiest, most vivacious, sweetest little boy. He's fearless. Uh, I see that there is nothing that this kid can't accomplish. Leo's first full sentence, you know, when he started talking was, I did it. And that to us is really Leo's theme. Literally, he was so proud to say that he did something. I don't know what it was. It was probably Drew Marker on my wall, but he still said, I did it. And that is Leo. I mean, there is nothing this little boy cannot do. Texas Children's, they became an extension of our family. Because of what we've been through and because of the strength that we get from Texas Children's, we know that we're ready for whatever is to come down the line. Before we even knew of his heart condition, uh, we come up with his Hebrew name, which was Lev. Lev means heart. Leo is our heart, he is our survivor, and he is our champion. Now he's in kindergarten. Uh, I haven't watched it. I'm, I'm crying. I'm not your sister. Um, oh my goodness, that just touched my heart so much. You know, Oh, hang on a second. I've got a little, got to turn this off. Of. Okay. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. I'm not very good at screen sharing. I think I haven't watched in a long time. I have a couple comments to make. First of all, I love that you allowed me to share your story because it truly is part of you. Yeah. But the other reason I'm glad that we could share that story is we work in an industry where we beat up on hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and doctors and labs all the time. But we don't often get to highlight miracles like this and what they can really do. And um, I think it's beautiful. And I think that it's important to remember that we're all part of the solution and we need those doctors and we need those, I'm still crying. Um, we need those, we need those miracles. And so we have to be thoughtful in how we, how we approach this, this problem solving. Yes. Thank you. And it doesn't mean we didn't negotiate our deductible. Or of course, anything, of course, right? it doesn't mean any of that. But it, it yeah, just means they, that, that we can't, we can't, we have to be careful with the brush we use when we paint systems. Yeah, no, I'm thankful. And and look, when they asked our family to be part of that video, it was obviously because we had a great outcome. And you know, right. so when, when your kid can be the poster for something, you're like, right. yes, because that's something you want them to be. But yeah, we were. We're grateful and it's, it's who I am. And it's, you know, it's, I think so much in this industry, we don't, and that we talked about the pandemic, we're not showing our whole selves and this is who I am, you know, it's yeah. apologetically and, and blessed. So you have a daughter as well. Yes, and I was, ju I just had her when that video was, was filmed. Yeah, my, I have a little girl named Goldie. Um, you know, that's a, she's the, the, the princess of our family. I always wanted a girl, and God's like, okay, we're giving you one. <laughs> she is adorable, but um, I'm just so pleased for you that that you know you guys have Thank had you. such great outcomes that you've really been able to embrace your whole life, and and um, also you know kudos to your husband with really stepping up and being there not only for you but for other men going through situations like that. I think that's that's really amazing. Thank you. Okay. So, <laughs> now compose myself for a minute. Yeah, no, all good. Um, so, are you? Um, and and you may actually. Do you work from home normally, or are you back in the office? So both. I have a choice. I have an office here. I, I kind of just depends on my day. So I go. I, I sometimes go in. Um, truthfully, you know, there's. I'm still a little worried with the Delta variant, and so when it's, I, I can be home. I'm home. I am traveling again, though. Um, 
for those listening, if anyone goes to self-insurance conference, that's my next one that I'll be at. I'm looking forward. I know you were just at Benefits Pro, Nancy. So it's, it's exciting to, to get to see people again. So yeah, the self-insurance conference is amazing. And I will not be able to attend that one this yeah. year. My son's getting married. So again, you know, we oh, have all these little balance. Oh, congratulations. Exciting. Thanks. Okay. So the last pharmacy um, question, and it's just kind of sort of around pharmacy, but since you mentioned Delta variant, this was actually on my list of things I wanted to touch on is um, we have really seen a dramatic impact on mental health as a result of the pandemic over the last yeah. year and a half, which feels like we're, kind of, we're closing in on two years now. Are you seeing that reflected in pharmacy claims? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was the first year we actually saw an increase in utilization of scripts overall for a whole block. And that's definitely because of health medicines. And, and really, I'll be curious to see what telemedicine's impact is on claims and, and where we go for the future. Um, but hopefully it's a good thing, right? I mean, like, yes, we could look at utilization, but they're not, most of them are not very expensive medications. And I think that when used correctly and monitored, hopefully they'll offset other areas of life that suffer, right? I mean, oh, I hope so. I mean, uh, there's other habits. Um, so you mentioned I was at a conference in which I just was, um, and one of the sessions I attended on purpose because I was so interested in it was the genomics of pharmaceuticals. Yep. And um, some of the testing they're doing specifically around um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs because they can identify how your body processes them yeah. to help you get on the right medication. Do you think there's going to be an uptick in that? I hope so. And, and look, it's something we've been exploring at our office for years. The problem is the technology is very expensive. And mm -hmm. while it's great, you know, I remember bringing it back to Detroit. Probably, I think I learned about it at a conference, at a SIA conference 10 years ago. And, you know, I remember bringing it to the office so excited. And our medical director was really excited about it. Um, but the thing is, is the technology was more expensive than all the other drugs. So it just right. didn't make sense. And when we brought it to employers and we're like, if you spend X, look at what the health implications are, but the drugs were not expensive. So I, right. I hope that the technology gets cheaper and that it's more cost effective because yeah, look what we're, you know, if we can figure out, I remember the big drug that was Plavix. That was the yep. one that, um, you know, 10 years ago was the, was amazing. Cause if it doesn't work in most people and it can cause issues, but the thing is, is people didn't seem worried about Plavix cause it's cheap. So I don't know. I'm hoping. Yeah, I find it a really inter I find it very interesting. I'm, I'm hoping that that's something that they continue to pursue. I did see, I mean, the costs have gone to come down dramatically um, from like $2,000 to $200, but still $200 is a lot compa in comparison you know, to the cost. EPM and it's how do you, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Okay, so we're done with the heavy stuff. I'm not going to cry anymore. So um, <laughs> we get to my five burning questions for the day. Okay, are you ready, Rachel? Yeah. Okay. Everybody gets this question right off the bat. I, I don't move. I don't change it off my question list. So what's your absolute favorite food in the world and can you cook it? Pasta. Yes. What version of pasta? I mean, oh, all pasta. Yes. All of it. Um, I love, um, I, I mean, it's something as simple as pasta and an arrabbiata sauce. It's my favorite. And I love to cook oh, I don't good. that because I love to feel healthy and pasta doesn't always make me feel healthy, but I love pasta. But pasta in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. You can, it's, it's generally what you add to the pasta right, right. that can make it bad. Okay, so what is the one character trait you admire most in other people and why? Authenticity, that's the word of my day, I think. I appreciate people who are real and just um, don't leave anything to be you know, I, I, I like a little mystery, but I, people who just are always themselves. 
because yeah. they can you immediately feel comfortable with them and it, you can build trust. I love that. Okay, so then turn the mirror on yourself. What's the one character trait that you have that you're most proud of and why? Yeah, same. I think I'm authentic. I, I, I think that I'm just, and I think this took me getting into my late 30s, early 40s to really embrace, which is just being myself. I think that's true for most people, Rachel, honestly. I mean, I, I think of my own, you know, career and life trajectory. And I know that the older I get, the more comfortable I get with myself and the less apologetic I am about who I am and um, what I do. So it's, it's yeah. interesting. All right. Okay. So this one is just for you. I just, okay. this one I don't know why, but I just really wanted to know if you were an animal, what would you be and why? A unicorn. I love that. You gave me the idea. Actually, I wish I was a unicorn because then I could fly and wear glitter all the time and it wouldn't be like not appropriate because I love glitter. It's, it's I love glitter too. So I think, I think that's a really good answer. Okay. So what's your secret talent or something people would be surprised to learn about you? I don't know if there's anything people would be surprised to learn about me because I'm always who I am. Um, all right. Here, a secret talent. I have been known at a wedding or two to, to dance with my hair. I'm so embarrassed that I'm saying this. If there's a Beyonce video on a caster listening, um, consider me. <laughs> so a little hair dancing. Okay. Yeah, I got it. It. You got to let your hair down. Yes. All right. Last question. So um, who's the one person that um, you've met on LinkedIn, but you've never met him in real life? or maybe a podcast that you follow that you just would really love to sit down and, you know, have a cup of coffee, a glass of wine and learn more about that person. I've never met. Never um, met. I'm going to have to, I can't believe I'm saying this person and they're going to laugh, but I, I have to say Lester Morales I, for the amount of times I've talked to him and been on screens with him and brain, you know, had some battle of the brains. I've never met Lester in person. And Lester is one person that, um, it's just a really good person and he's um his heart's in the right place and he's passionate and i would love to have a drink with him so i got to meet lester over this oh, i actually i actually spent quite a bit of time with him and that was the first time i'd met him and i will tell you he is definitely somebody you should meet in person because he's even better in person than he is um on screen or, or you know even on a zoom call just a genuine great person so yeah so him and, and uh ben from rover analytics just because ben is a riot that's the ben only was there too he was a player yeah. i know i wanted to i like i said i wish i could have gone but i made it you, you had more important things to do yeah. and we all we all we have, we have to choose life so anyway i would really like to thank you so much for coming on is there any last words of wisdom you want to share with the world before you just that i'm not the, you know just the words of wisdom is that there's always somebody wiser than you <laughs> so if you heard anything i said today and you're intrigued know that there's so many people out there that have had so many different takes on everything and learn awesome well thank you so much rachel i appreciate it and um for everyone else out there um i will see you next week thank you so much for having me nancy